Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to 2019, the start of a new year. Seems like a perfect time to take a journey, don't you think? So, if you're all packed up, you've used the washroom, and grabbed some snacks, I think it's high time we hit the road. You know, place is such a funny thing. As humans, we're so deeply rooted to a sense of place. Where we live, where we work, where we grew up, where our ancestors are from. Our very identities are often defined in terms of place. And so often, our fears are tied to place as well. The run-down old house at the end of the street. The dark forest path we're nervous to walk down. That neighborhood we just don't feel quite safe. Place can be somewhere we belong, where we feel safe and protected. Or it can feel vulnerable, alien. It's the unknown, the unforeseen, and the unexpected. Not knowing what you'll encounter when it's somewhere you've never been. I hope that you'll indulge me as we do a little sightseeing. Let's see what we can uncover, hmm? For those of you who have joined us in the last few years, you might not know that our home base, or Stevens at least, is in Northern Virginia which is actually extremely fitting for a podcast that regularly features stories of the paranormal. Virginia, as it turns out, ranks as number one 
on the list of most haunted places in America from the National Register of Haunted Locations. Yeah, that's a thing, because of course it is. There are nearly 170 sites across the state that have registered claims of paranormal happenings. Which shouldn't be surprising, I suppose, considering the rich, diverse, and often bloody history of the state. As a region that saw substantial fighting during the American Civil War, claims of ghostly soldiers span everything from old forts, churches, and graveyards to hotels, houses, and taverns. There's the abandoned St. Albans Sanatorium, a former hospital for the mentally ill that's considered, by some, to be the most haunted location on the eastern coast. There's a lighthouse linked to buried pirate treasure, and a statue in Lexington said to weep for young soldiers killed in the Battle of Newmarket. Virginia has so many creepy sites that there's even a page devoted to the subject on the official Virginia Tourism website. I'll throw a link in the show notes. One of the more gruesome legends, however, surrounds the Colchester Overpass in Clifton, Virginia. Chances are, if you've actually heard of it, you know it better as the Bunny Man Bridge. If you weren't aware of its history, you'd probably never give it a second glance. It's pretty unassuming. A little single-lane tunnel underneath a set of railway tracks. But sometimes... It's those unexpected, out-of-the-way little places that pack the biggest paranormal punch. The legend of the axe-toting specter known as the Bunny Man has written new significance in the history of Colchester Overpass. But just like there are two ends to the tunnel, there are two main unique entries to the Bunny Man story as well. In 1970, a young couple had parked near the overpass intending to visit a relative in the area. While the car idled and the two chatted, out of the corner of his eye, the young man behind the wheel caught a glimpse of movement in the rearview mirror. A person, all dressed in white, with something strange on his head. From what he could make out, it looked as though the man was wearing a bunny costume. Before either of the couple had time to react, the rear passenger window of the car exploded inwards, showering them with glass. The driver wasted no time throwing the car into gear and speeding away from the area as the bunny man yelled threats after them. It wasn't until the couple were far enough away to feel safe when they pulled over to catch their breath and give their hearts a chance to slow that they realized... What had shattered the back window? A very large, very sharp hatchet. That wasn't the only incident of its kind, either. Throughout 1970, there were numerous other reports of people who had been threatened by an axe-wielding man in a white suit with bunny ears near the overpass. It wasn't long after that series of incidents that a second, supposedly older, legend surfaced. As it turns out, that wasn't the only bunny-related incident to happen at that location. In 1907, a transport carrying a group of convicts from the local insane asylum to a nearby prison crashed near the location of the overpass. Most of the occupants of the transport were killed, including the driver, but ten managed to escape. Most of those were rounded up in fairly short order, 
except for two. Not long after the crash, however, one of the two remaining fugitives was found dead, hanging from the overpass. Depending on who you ask, there may, or may not, have been a note attached to the corpse signed, The Bunny Man. The police continued to search for the second convict. As they did, they made a series of unexpected discoveries. Mangled, half-eaten rabbit corpses had been hung from trees in the area and from the overpass itself. Eventually, according to some accounts, the last convict was found and cornered. In a last-ditch attempt to flee, the man ran onto the train tracks and was struck and killed by an approaching train. Now, how much, if any, of this older story is true is open for debate. That there's never been an asylum in the area definitely throws doubt onto the scene. Then again, there continue to be reports of dead rabbits hung from trees in the area, and stories of mysterious, sometimes gruesome, deaths in and around the Colchester overpass. Not to mention the sightings of a man dressed in white, with bunny ears on his head and an axe in his hand, who appears under the overpass late at night. No surprise that it's a popular place for supernatural enthusiasts and teenagers looking for a good scare. I think it's time we got you a good scare, don't you? Let's hear some fiction. Our first story is a classic from our old friend M.R. James. Montague Rhodes James was an English author, medievalist scholar, and provost at King's College, Cambridge, and of Eton College. He was also vice-chancellor of the University of Cambridge. Though James's work as a medievalist is still highly regarded, he is best remembered for his ghost stories, which are regarded as among the best in the genre. James redefined the ghost story for the new century by abandoning many of the formal Gothic clichés of his predecessors and using more realistic, contemporary settings. However, James's protagonists and plots tend to reflect his own antiquarian interests. Accordingly, he is known as the originator of the antiquarian ghost story. James died in 1936. Listen with me to M.R. James' A School Story. Two men in a smoking room were talking of their private school days. At our school, said A, we had a ghost footmark on the staircase. What was it like? Oh, very unconvincing. Just the shape of a shoe with a square toe, if I remember right. The staircase was a stone one. I never heard any story about the thing, and that seemed odd when you come to think of it. Why didn't someone invent one, I wonder? You can never tell with little boys. They have a mythology, all their own. There's a subject for you, by the way. The folklore of private schools. And yes, the crop is rather scanty, though I imagine 
If you do investigate the cycle of ghost stories, for instance, which the boys at private school tell each other, they would all turn out to be highly compressed versions of stories out of books. Nowadays, the Strand and Pearsons and so on would be extensively drawn upon. No doubt they weren't born or thought of in my time. Let's see, I wonder if I can remember the staple ones that I was told. First, there was the house with a room in which a series of people insisted on passing a night, and each of them in the morning was found kneeling in a corner, and had just time to say, I've seen it, and died. Wasn't that the house in Berkeley Square? I dare say it was. Then there was the man who heard a noise in the passage at night, opened his door, and saw someone crawling towards him on all fours with his eye hanging out on his cheek. There was besides, let me think, yes, the room where a man was found dead in bed with a horseshoe mark on his forehead, and the floor under the bed was covered with marks of horseshoes also. I don't know why. Also there was the lady who, on locking her bedroom door in a strange house, heard a thin voice among the bed curtains say, Now we're shut in for the night. None of those had any explanation or sequel. I wonder if they go on still, those stories. Well, likely enough, with additions from magazines, as I said. You never heard, did you, of a real ghost at a private school? I thought not. Nobody has that ever I came across. From the way in which you say it, I gathered that you have. I really don't know, but this is what was in my mind. It happened at my private school thirty-odd years ago, and I haven't had any explanation of it. The school I mean was near London. It was established in a large and fairly old house, a great white building with very fine grounds about it. There were large cedars in the garden, as there are in so many of the older gardens in the Thames Valley, and ancient elms in the three or four fields which we used for our games. I think probably it was quite an attractive place, but boys seldom allow that their schools possess any tolerable features. I came to school in a September, soon after the year 1870, and among the boys who arrived on the same day was one who I took to, a Highland boy whom I'll call MacLeod. I needn't spend time in describing him. The main thing is that I got to know him very well. He was not an exceptional boy in any way not particularly good at books or games, but he suited me. The school was a large one. There must have been from 120 to 130 boys there as a rule, and so a considerable staff of masters was required. And there were rather frequent changes among them. One term, perhaps it was my third or fourth, a new master made his appearance. His name was Samson. He was a tallish, stout, pale, black-bearded man. I think we liked him. He had traveled a good deal and had stories which amused us on our school walks, so that there was always some competition among us to get within earshot of him. I remember, too, dear me, I have hardly thought of it since then, that he had a charm on his watch that attracted my attention one day, and he let me examine it. It was, I now suppose, a gold Byzantine coin there was an effigy of some absurd emperor on one side, and the other side had been worn practically smooth. 
and he had cut on it, rather barbarously, his own initials, G.W.S., and a date, 24 July, 1865. Yes, I can see it now. He told me he had picked it up in Constantinople. It was about the size of a florin, perhaps rather smaller. Well, the first odd thing that happened was this. Samson was doing Latin grammar with us. One of his favorite methods, perhaps it is a rather good one, was to make us construct sentences out of our own heads to illustrate the rules he was trying to make us learn. Of course, that is a thing which gives a silly boy a chance of being impertinent. There are lots of school stories in which that happens. Or anyhow, there might be. But Samson was too good a disciplinarian for us to try of thinking that on with him. Now, on this occasion, he was telling us how to express remembering in Latin. And he ordered us each to make a sentence bringing in the verb mamini, I remember. Well, most of us made up some ordinary sentence such as, I remember my father, or he remembers his book, or something equally uninteresting. And I dare say a good many put down mamino librum mium, and so forth. But the boy I mentioned, MacLeod, was evidently thinking of something more elaborate than the rest. The rest of us wanted to have our sentences passed and get on to something else, so some kicked him under the desk, and I, who was next to him, poked him and whispered to him to look sharp. But he didn't seem to attend. I looked at the paper and saw he had put down nothing at all. So I jogged him again harder than before and upbraided him sharply for keeping us all waiting. That did have some effect. He started and seemed to wake up, and then very quickly he scribbled about a couple of lines on his paper and showed it up with the rest. As it was the last, or nearly the last, to come in, and as Samson had a good deal to say to the boys who had written Menemiscus Patrimio and the rest of it, it turned out that the clock struck twelve before he had got to MacLeod, and MacLeod had to wait afterwards to have his sentence corrected. There was nothing much going on outside when I got out, so I waited for him to come. He came very slowly when he did arrive, and I guessed there had been some sort of trouble. Well, I said, what did you get? Oh, I don't know, said MacLeod. Nothing much, but I think Samson's rather sick with me. Why, did you show him up some rot? No fear, he said. I was all right as far as I could see. It was like this. Memento, that's right enough for a remember, and it takes a genitive. Memento, pirti, interquator, taxos. What silly rot, I said. What made you shove that down? And what does it mean? That's the funny part, said MacLeod. I'm not quite sure what it means. All I know is it just came into my head, and I corked it down. I know what I think it means, because just before I wrote it down, I had sort of a picture in my head. I believe it means, remember the well among the four. What are those dark sort of trees that have the red berries on them? Mountain ashes, I suppose you mean? I've never heard of them, said MacLeod. No, I'll tell you, use. Well, what did Samson say? Why, he was jolly odd about it. When he read it, he got up and went to the mantelpiece and stopped quite a long time without saying anything with his back to me. And then he said, without turning round, and rather quiet, What do you suppose that means? 
I told him what I thought, only I couldn't remember the name of the silly tree, and then he wanted to know why I put it down. Then I had to say something or other. And after that, he left off talking about it, and he asked me how long I'd been here, and where my people lived, and things like that. And then I came away, but he wasn't looking a bit well. I don't remember any more that was said by either of us about this. Next day, MacLeod took to his bed with a chill or something of the kind, and it was a week or more before he was in school again. And as much as a month went by without anything happening that was noticeable. Whether or not Mr. Sampson was really startled, as MacLeod had thought, he didn't show it. I'm pretty sure, of course, now, that there was something very curious in his past history. But I'm not going to pretend that we boys were sharp enough to guess any such thing. There was one other incident of the same kind as the last which I told you. Several times since that day we had to make up examples in school to illustrate different rules, but there had never been any row except when we did it wrong. At last there came a day when we were going through those dismal things which people call conditional sentences, and we were told to make up a conditional sentence, expressing a future consequence. We did it, right or wrong, and showed up our bits of paper, and Samson began looking through them. All at once he got up, made some odd noise in his throat, and rushed out the door that was just by his desk. Well, we sat there for a minute or two, and then, I suppose it was incorrect, but we went up, and I, one or two others, to look at the papers on his desk. Of course, I thought someone must have put down some nonsense or other, and Samson had gone off to report him. All the same, I noticed that he hadn't taken any of the papers with him when he ran out. Well, the top paper on his desk was written in red ink, which no one used, and it wasn't in anyone's hand who was in the class. They all looked at it, MacLeod and all, and took their dying oaths that it wasn't theirs. Then I thought of counting the bits of paper, and of this I made quite certain that there were seventeen bits of paper on the desk and sixteen boys in the form. Well, I bagged the extra paper and kept it, and I believe I have it now. And now you will want to know what was written on it. It was simple enough, and harmless enough, I should have said. See to non, veneris ad me, ego venerium ad te, which means, I suppose, if you don't come to me, I'll come to you. Could you show me the paper? interrupted the listener. Yes, I could, but there's another odd thing about it. That same afternoon I took it out of my locker. I know for certain it was the same bit, for I made a finger mark on it, and no single trace of writing of any kind was there on it. I kept it as I said, and since that time I have tried various experiments to see whether sympathetic ink had been used, but absolutely without result. So much for that. After about half an hour, Samson looked in again. He said he had felt very unwell and told us we might go. He came rather gingerly to his desk and gave just one look at the uppermost paper, and I suppose he thought he must have been dreaming. Anyhow, he asked no questions. That day was a half-holiday, 
and the next day Samson was in school again much as usual. That night, the third and last incident in my story happened. We, MacLeod and I, slept in a dormitory at right angles to the main building. Samson slept in the main building on the first floor. There was a very bright full moon. At an hour, which I can't tell exactly, but sometime between one and two, I was woken up by somebody shaking me. It was MacLeod, and a nice state of mind he seemed to be in. Come, he said, come, there's a burglar getting in through Samson's window. As soon as I could speak, I said, Well, why not call out and wake everybody up? No, no, he said, I'm not sure who it is. Don't make a row. Come and look. Naturally, I came and looked, and naturally there was no one there. I was cross enough, and should have called MacLeod plenty of names. Only, I couldn't tell why. It seemed to me that there was something wrong. Something that made me very glad I wasn't alone to face it. We were still at the window looking out, and as soon as I could, I asked him what he had heard or seen. I didn't hear anything at all, he said. But about five minutes before I woke you, I found myself looking out of this window here, and there was a man sitting or kneeling on Samson's windowsill and looking in, and I thought he was beckoning. What sort of man? MacLeod wriggled. I don't know, he said, but I can tell you one thing. He was beastly thin, and he looked as if he was wet all over, and he said, looking round and whispering as if he hardly liked to hear it himself, I'm not at all sure that he was alive. We went on talking in whispers some time longer, and eventually crept back to bed. No one else in the room woke or stirred the whole time. I believe we did sleep a bit afterwards, but we were very cheap next day. And the next day Mr. Sampson was gone, not to be found, and I believe no trace of him has ever come to light since. In thinking it over, one of the oddest things about it all seemed to me to be the fact that neither MacLeod or I ever mentioned what we had seen to any third person whatever. Of course, no questions were asked on the subject, and if they had been, I am inclined to believe that we could not have made any answer. We seemed unable to speak about it. That is my story, said the narrator. The only approach to a ghost story connected with a school that I know, but still, I think, an approach to such a thing. The sequel to this may perhaps be reckoned highly conventional, but a sequel there is, and so it must be produced. There had been more than one listener to the story, and in the later part of the same year, more of the next, one such listener was staying at a country house in Ireland. One evening his host was turning over a drawer full of odds and ends in the smoking room. Suddenly he put his hands upon a little box. Now, he said, you know about old things. Tell me what this is. My friend opened the little box and found in it a thin gold chain with an object attached to it. He glanced at the object and then took off his spectacles to examine it more narrowly. What's the history of this? he asked. Odd enough, was the answer. You know the yew thicket in the shrubbery? Well, a year or two back we were cleaning out the old well that used to be in the clearing here, and what do you suppose we found? 
Is it possible that you found a body? said the visitor, with an odd feeling of nervousness. We did that, but what's more, in every sense of the word, we found two. Good heavens, two? Was there anything to show how they got there? Was this thing found with them? It was, amongst the rags of the clothes that were on the bodies. A bad business, whatever the story of it may have been. One body had the arms tightly round the other. They must have been there thirty years or more, long enough before we came to the place. You may judge we filled up the well fast enough. Do you make anything of what's cut onto the gold coin you have there? I think I can, said my friend, holding it to the light. But he read it without much difficulty. It seems to be G.W.S., 24 July, 1865. That was M.R. James' A School Story, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is, of course, a human with a normal human job, and, being totally human, of course, has a spouse and pets. When not doing completely normal human things, she, uh, he, human gender pronouns are so confusing, can be heard as a regular narrator for far-fetched fables. He can also be found as both a narrator and associate editor at Tales to Terrify. All communications can be directed to theboojum.org. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. 
they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Our second story of the evening comes to us from Elianea Triantafilou. Elianea Triantafilou is a Greek author and artist. She writes ghost stories. She currently lives in northern Sweden with a boy and a dog. Her short fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Apex, Strange Horizons, Black Static, and other venues. You can find her on Twitter at Foxes and Roses or on her website eviniatiantafilu.wordpress.com. Links will be in the show notes. Children of the Night, feast your ears on Evgenia Triantafilu's What We Are Molded After. Every day, I wake up besides Eleni, my wife. It is autumn, and the air comes from the bedroom window, brisk and fresh. My wife still sleeps on her side of the bed. She is not really my wife, any more than I am her husband. But it is written so across my chest, along with my name, Andreas, husband. I wake up without truly having slept. I still don't think I am doing it right, because dreams never come to me. Unlike Eleni, who tosses and turns, sweat collecting on her forehead, I reach out to wipe her warm face. Her skin is soft and pliable, so different from mine, rough and cold. Suddenly, she opens her eyes. I freeze. Her expression is wild, her blue eyes fixed on me. The moment passes. She loosens up, realizing who I am, who I am not. Please don't, she says, and gets off the bed, her white nightgown dragging. She climbs down the wooden stairs, leaving me behind. Sometimes I think Eleni's heart is made of stone similar to my own rock heart. But I can't help loving her. She is my maker. I remind her of her husband. She molded me after him. That is reason enough for her to fear me. Only in the darkness, when we lie in our bed, my touch unwinds her. She can't see my face clearly then. Doesn't feel threatened. She says I am gentle and patient unlike Andreas, and his unkind manner. She doesn't mind my cold embrace. She prefers it to his warm, crushing arms. You wouldn't hurt me, would you? She whispers in the night, and I wish I had a voice to reassure her. There is a photograph hanging above the fireplace. A group of men fully armed, 
pistols and rifles and sullen faces. Most of them are dead now. The rest have turned against each other after the war ended. Now they battle each other up in the mountains, not far from here. Sometimes, brother against brother, blood against blood. The tall man, left from center, is Eleni's husband, her real husband, Andreas. Dead. One of his comrades brought the news along with his bloody army jacket. I was not here when this happened. I came because of this jacket, and because my maker knows magic. Once she enveloped me in it, I changed. My clay body drank the dried blood the way battlefields feed off the warm and fresh blood of the fallen. She says I look like him, because she made me this way, only better. I stare at his picture every day but I can't really tell. A terracotta vase filled with red carnations stands under the photograph. I run my fingertips over its smooth surface and around the carvings of its neck. My skin resembles the vase's veneer more than human skin. We were made out of the same clay, but to serve a different purpose. Eleni covers her long brown hair with her black headscarf and leaves our house. I stay inside. I usually do. She doesn't want anybody to see me. For the rest of the village, she's the hero's widow, Andreas's wife. That is the name the people of the village call her by. When she walks down the dusty road to the church, or up to the stone fountain. When she walks by the hanged men in the village square, their deaths displayed, set an example, to whom I am not sure. To get fresh water, she is not a laney. She gave up that name when she married him. But in this house, I belong to her. I am Eleni's husband. When she says these words, her face lights up for a moment. Then the glow fades. I have memories of waking up in this house. The jacket wrapped around my shoulders. Her pale face was the first thing my clay eyes met, followed by her stiff body. Her eyes darted, examining me. She was trying to guess my mood, my predisposition. My hands settled softly on her waist, an instinctive motion. She jolted, but didn't get up. She took my cool face and placed it on her bosom. Warmth, the smell of oregano and cloves. Somehow I knew that smell. I knew nothing and everything. The taste of wine in my mouth, flashbacks of a war I never fought in. My lover's body, younger, in my arms, lover. Was it the woman holding me, or someone else? I looked up, and her face twisted in a way I wasn't sure what to make of. Joy, I thought. I found a trace of it vaguely in the past, 
of a man that was and wasn't me. Everything was a haze. She hummed as my head rested quietly upon her chest. Don't bother with the past. You are new, my new husband. And she rocked me to sleep. The clouds that hovered over the mountains since dawn have reached our village. Through the open window I watch the raindrops raid our yard, the fields, the soil. Just like my love adds water to mold the earth to her whims. I know the rain will stop, the earth will drink up the water, and the sky will reclaim the rest. Everything will breathe again after the storm passes. The axe, left in the yard, buried inside the tree stub, catches my eye. Eleni isn't home yet. She probably took refuge in the church. I know I am not supposed to leave the house but the axe will rust in the rain. We can't afford a rusty axe. I peer outside a while longer, looking for strangers. The rain has turned to a drizzle now. I can cover myself with Andreas's jacket and go get it. Quickly, I slide through the door and run for it. The wet soil gives way under my boots. I grab the axe and turn around. My right arm is holding the jacket over my head. I almost hit the woman who stands right behind me, soaking wet. She doesn't seem to care about the rain, not as much as I do. She looks bewildered by my presence. Andreas, she cries. She falls on me, hugging me tightly. I am confused by her feelings, so much that, for a moment, I forget I am not him. I open my mouth, but no sound comes out. I am incomplete this way. Something to remind me I am not fully human. You are alive, she whispers against my cold body. You are here, my love. She laughs. Then she raises her head to take a better look at me, and the smile on her face is gone. What's wrong? she says. Don't you recognize me? She backs away, clasping her face with both hands, her black eyes darken even more. You are not Andreas. Who are you? She looks at me intently, probably understands the difference in the stare, the presence. In the way I look at her, she sees a stranger. Her face has turned pale, and just when she is about to leave, Eleni comes back. What are you doing in my house? Are you looking for lies to spread? She yells at the other woman. Who is this man? The woman asks, baffled. He is nobody. You are crazy. Leave. My maker responds. Something inside of me cracks. She pushes the woman out of our property. I get in the house as fast as I can. Eleni follows and shuts the door behind her. Then she turns to me. She strikes me on the cheek. Her fingers leave a mark on my face. Why did you bring her in our house? Why did you take my cousin to your bed? She yells at me. Immediately she stops. Her hands tremble. I can see an apology flutter in her eyes. 
I touched the three new dents formed on my skin across the borders of my stubble. They have the shape of her slim fingers. She has the power to do that. She is my maker. I know she means her husband and not me. I bow my head and let her know I understand. She seems to not have realized who I really am yet. Even though she sees the mark she left on my clay face. Her bright blue eyes gleam with rage and her face is flushed red. She leaves for the small room in the back where she keeps her treasures. She hides them in linen pouches closed tight with drawstrings. I know what she is going to do next. Many times I have seen my love mold creatures of clay the way she made me. These creatures are not as elaborate or as convincing as I am. Perhaps that is the reason I still exist. I am her best creation yet. Or maybe there is another reason. Nobody knows about her creations. If they knew, they would shoot her dead or burn her alive inside her house. You can't step into God's territory and not pay for it here, she says. She would leave if she could, but there's nowhere she can go. There is war all around us, and food is scarce. Everywhere is the same anyway, she says. I am not sure about that. I have not been far from this house. Her parents in Arcathia would not take her back. She is Andreas's widow, and she belongs to this house. What I am most afraid to ask, though, is if she would take me with her. Today, everything goes inside her mud. Hairs, teeth, words, and tears. She shapes her creatures carefully, with dedication and affection. She kneads the clay, warming it with her hands. First, she picks the stick bones to build the frame and lays the first layer, the muscles. Then she lays the protective skin, hiding within the item of the person she molds it after. Usually, it's something small, a strand of hair, nails, an eyelash. Then she adds the finer details patiently, carving them with her knives, squinting from time to time. When the little people take the form that satisfies her, she lets them dry out in the backyard. When ready, the creatures wake up, clumsy and lost, comical and helpless. She names them father and brother, and many other names I do not know, names that hurt when she utters them. She doesn't spare them. In the dark of the shed, by the candlelight, or out in the garden under the waning moon, she avenges herself. Once she's finished, she starts breaking them down again. Piece by piece, she returns them to earth. They are unable to scream, but somehow I can feel their fear and despair. Sadness takes over me, and I leave her to her doings and retreat to the shed to cut firewood. After a while, she comes and finds me sitting on the great tree stump we cut firewood on when we labor outside. The back of her hand brushes my cheek, slowly this time, and holding the promise of kindness. 
as she caresses my marks. She whispers, I'm sorry, you look so much like him. I raise my head. Her eyes are quiet now. Her storm of rage has died down, and what remains is a clear blue lake. For some reason, it makes me sick that her mood has changed because she took all of her anger out on clay. The holy book she reads says, We all come from clay, even her. Perhaps that is the reason why sometimes I feel closer to her than I do the flower-decorated pottery on top of the fireplace. People will start talking, she begins, even if they don't believe her. They will talk. They will come to the house to see for themselves. We are lucky he is not here. I lean on the axe, an invisible burden buckling my shoulders. She kneels by my side and cups my hands in her. If they find you here, we are not safe. She stands up again, takes the axe out of my hands. She grips it tight and looks at me, hesitant. I want to tell her that I can hide in the woods. Food is not necessary for my existence, neither is sleep. Maybe I could join the partisans and become a hero like the man I was molded after. I feel no pain in my skin. My rock heart is another thing. But I have no voice. I am a mute creature, and complicated thoughts are a luxury for me to express. I only stare helpless with my clay eyes and silently beg her not to do it. You should have stayed inside, she lets out. She raises the axe, uncertain, and strives to find her footing. She utters words unknown to me. Without leaving the stump, I focus on her deep blue eyes as I feel the first blow on my shoulder. I feel, but I don't hurt. Her scarf floats to the ground and hair falls on her face, but she keeps going. Another blow, on my knee this time, and my leg rolls to the pile of firewood. The blood she has bestowed on me, her husband's blood, slowly leaves me. I could stop her. I could. Only I don't want to. Not because she is my maker, but because I love her. Another blow, and then another one. Parts of me drop to the earth. I roll to the stump. They already look alien to me. Like they were never mine. Pieces of a broken vase. I struggle to lift my head, waiting for the fatal blow, but she spares the rest of me. She kneels to the ground and gently murmurs something in my ear to keep my blood from escaping. I am sorry, she whispers. I am sorry. I am sorry. Now she is safe. People wouldn't recognize me, even if they tried. I no longer look human, Eleni says. I am a pile of mud that barely resembles her husband. She will keep me in the shed, just to make sure. But she will leave the door open, always, so that I can see and breathe the fresh air from the mountains. It is humid and chilly, 
The dew is sitting in layers on my head, cooling me. I pretend that is Eleni's gentle hand. She hardly comes in here anymore. Only when it's necessary. I think it pains her to see me, but she doesn't have the courage to finish me off. I wonder if it is because she loves me, or because I am the last thing that holds something of her husband. The shed's door is opposite the left side of the house. I watch her through the window, doing everyday chores. She doesn't glance my way. I feel my head throbbing, as if invisible veins traverse my entire clay skull. A robust man stands outside the house, almost as tall as I used to be. He wears an old and torn army jacket, with one sleeve cut off and a bandage around his back and left arm. With his right hand, he clutches a wooden stick as he walks to the door. His footsteps are heavy, but steady, and he is banging on the door, as if he will unhinge it. Eleni opens the door, and all I can see is her shape quiver and cower in front of him. Her slim figure appears even more minuscule compared to his, although he doesn't stand straight. I know who he is. I haven't seen the photo that's hanging above the fireplace for some time now, but I know. His hollow face and brutish manner fooled me at first. In the picture, he is assured, silent. Still, he looks nothing like me. I can feel him. My blood is his blood. Deep inside me, I always knew he was still alive. I feel anger boiling inside of him. My poor Eleni. Eleni rarely leaves the house ever since he came back. He yells, and she weeps. These are things I can endure for her. Be obedient and wait here in the half-darkness of the night. Tonight, the doors are locked, and all the windows are shuttered. It's not because of the raging storm outside. Eleni's blue, terrified eyes are the last thing I see. Silence, then things breaking behind those walls. Eleni screams, cries. Silence again. Nobody is around, and if they were, I doubt they would do anything to help her. I cannot hear my love anymore. There are things I can endure for her, but not this. I move around, pushing with what used to be my right elbow. I swing back and forth on the table, and then plummet down from the table, landing on my face. I twist and turn and manage to open the door with my mouth. I grab with my left hand the mud that's in front of me and drag my body closer and closer to the house. Mud and clay become one, and somewhere on the way I lose my eyes and part of my left side. But I gain something else. My will to protect her dissolves in the earth that surrounds the house. I keep going. I will get there. I will find her. 
And if I don't, I will still be out here. I will be the ground he will step on when he crosses the threshold. I wish for a fight with him. Blood against blood. That was Evinia Triantafilu's What We Are Molded After, as read by Jake Wachholz. Jake Wachholz has finally found his career path in education and recently completed his first year of teaching, where he taught special education math. His hobby is hobbies, and now that includes reading horror stories for Tales to Terrify. He lives in Ohio with his wife, two daughters, and one dogter. Thank you, Jake. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. If you like what you hear, consider supporting us on Patreon. And like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Plus, we just love to hear from you. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I hope you'll join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.